Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today is a special topic because I have a guest, a friend who is an incredible and passionate advocate for mothers. Christy Turlington Burns, who founded Every Mother Counts because she knew that there were far too many pregnancies and childbirths that are not the events that we hope for. And when she found out about how many preventable maternal deaths happen in the developing world, in fact, the U.S. is the only industrialized nation with a consistently rising maternal mortality rate, and we spend more per capita on healthcare than any other country. So when she found this problem after having her own experience giving birth to her first child, she went on a mission to change things for women. And since one of the things that Christy does through Every Mother Counts is bring together healthy moms who are able to, and not just moms, anybody who wants to do this, but healthy groups of a community that want to run for mothers, they have marathoners raising money for global maternal health. So I thought it was a good time to welcome Christy, and I love her so much. And I think this is going to be really an interesting conversation. And it's important to check in, especially as we, you know, get past Halloween and on to thinking about Thanksgiving it's a great time to check in with ourselves and think about how important it is to take care of each other as mothers, to take care of babies by taking care of mothers, and to do our part. So I just thought it would be great to find out about, you know, every once in a while, what one mom is doing to take on supporting global health. And don't forget to stick around because afterwards I'm going to have closing notes and answer listener questions that you've sent in. I'm excited to continue to do that. Hope you enjoy this and let me know what you think. Here is Christy Turlington Burns. Our goal is to make pregnancy um, and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. So we are looking at the quality of respectful and equitable maternity care in the United States, but also in many other countries around the world. We would love to do more, uh, but it's already a lot for a small organization. So for me, in order to sort of highlight that this is a global um, challenge and it's a something that 
many of us share in common in terms of um, limited access or good access to services and health care. Um, looking through the lens of becoming a mother, entering motherhood, it, as you also said, healthy so that our children, not only because our children will have a better chance at being healthy people, but to make sure that women survive this very survivable and really arguably one of the most transformative experiences in a woman's life, like to have that opportunity to survive and thrive as mothers. What's the percentage who should survive Mm. that don't. So globally, mm -hmm. the estimation is that 303,000 girls and women, and I'll say girls because girls ages sure. 15 through 19 are some of the most vulnerable um, to dying in um, childbirth or from pregnancy complications. So 303,000, which is may or may not be accurate, um, it's very, very hard to get good numbers because, I mean, data is scarce everywhere, but um, surveys are inconsistent. We only really just started to pay attention and count girls and women as carefully as we are right now in the global arena. For every girl or woman who dies from pregnancy or childbirth-related complication, there are 20 to 30 others who will suffer extreme morbidity, meaning that they will have some um, disability or discomfort or trauma related to the birth of their children or child for their entire lives. And so when you kind of couple those two groups together, mm -hmm. millions of girls and women we're talking about. Um, so it's a big one. And, and so, so much pre is preventable. Exactly. So globally— um, 90% of these deaths are preventable. And then here in the United States, um, 60%, or at more than 50, between 50 and 60%, which is still a lot. That's a lot, considering yeah. we're a fully developed country with incredible potential in healthcare. We are the only industrialized country in the world with a rising maternal mortality rate, <sighs> the only one, um, which is shocking because we do spend more per capita than any other developed country in the world on healthcare. And yet we're not getting the same results as many other developed nations. And um, and there are lots of um, reasons for that. Our health system is very broken and dysfunctional. The countries where you're not seeing as many maternal mortality um, or mor morbidities are countries where universal healthcare is there is standard is working a standard exactly and then you also have uh, medical systems where maternity care and the options that women need in childbirth are integrated into the healthcare system so you have different um, types of providers not mm -hmm. everything is highly medicalized you have midwives you have um, community health workers you have family docs you have like a, a whole range of people that are focused on women's reproductive health Atul Gawande is, is this incredible writer, as you know, and doctor, physician, who's focused a lot on health systems and checklists and various um, ways to address some of the some of the challenges that mm -hmm. our system is facing, and also outside of the U.S. And he wrote a piece once for the New Yorker about the history of obstetrics, and I refer to it and I share it with people all the time because it's so fascinating. Because people often wonder, well, wait you know, when did midwives come out of favor and when did um, obstetrics become a, a bigger profession and when did the hospitals come into... So I'll oversimplify this just because of we don't have that much time mm -hmm. to go into the details, but 
I guess in the 1930s, which is sort of when teaching hospitals started to really grow and become much more prevalent across the country. And that's also the same period of time where our insurance system sort of came into um, its wonderful self that it is now, um, or self-institute, whatever it is, um, red tape. Um, And so those things were happening at the same time. And before that, most women gave birth at home, Mm -hmm. which is still the standard in a lot of different countries. And in those scenarios, that was fine. You know, there was healthcare being provided within the home, which, you know, took into account that moms had a lot of different challenges and responsibilities with raising children, you know, taking care of the land or taking care of the home. And so to have her healthcare needs met in her home was the best way to make sure that she got healthcare at all. And also, because you're in the home, you could be able to look and see what's happening in the home. You Mm -hmm. could sort of address some of the other social determinants of health. You could sort of see how healthy, you know, is there a grandparent there? Does that grandparent have TB? Does that, you know, like you could sort of really take a check of what, what, what the living conditions were of an entire family or extended family in some cases. And then when the hospital started to emerge and suddenly this new specialty in medicine started to come, they were always in teaching hospitals. And you started to find that actually there were more linkages to death in hospitals because a doctor would work on a cadaver and then then, not wash his hands and then deliver a baby. Like they didn't, and they didn't have that full understanding of germ, you know, the theories of germs and, and, and how we were contributing to, you know, hospitals can be very dangerous and dirty places, right? So suddenly we, we change something in the system, which then says, let's put everyone having a baby into a hospital. And suddenly the people, the old school method was like, that's bad, that's old, that's wrong. And now this is where you want to have a baby. And this is where you want a doctor to deliver your baby. And now, you know, layers and layers and layers of, you know, um, pain medication mm-hmm. and um, anesthesia and all the other things that kind of came with creating a much more medicalized experience mm-hmm. in, um, in becoming a mother. And so when you look over the history and you saw that for some time, we made these great strides in maternal health and more women's were more women were surviving more children were surviving and then you get to the, I mean that was the 30s and you get to the 1980s and that number starts to go the opposite direction meanwhile the rest of the world is doing the complete opposite the rest of the world has been delivering at home always sometimes there's hospitals sometimes there's not sometimes there's clinics sometimes there's not but in terms of maternal deaths or infant deaths with some very simple solutions education like it's the it's the same it's the same process but it's happening slightly faster i guess now with the way that we have access to information or the way that that information is being passed mm-hmm. along and translated to other um cultures and communities and and, um, institutions. So that's where, like, that article really woke me up because I thought, wow, we were were on the right track, although harmful, unintended consequences Mm -hmm. were being taught both socially to people about where is the right place or the best place to become a mom, and then also what were the things that we were going to expose her to or um, subject her to Mm -hmm. that are now impacting the lives of women. And so that kind of skips to, you know, a lot of the sort of treatment of respect and or disrespect um, in hospitals or the judgment and the kind of stigmatization that comes with women who come in from a variety of backgrounds. And the first line of defense, and it usually it is a line of defense, is bad mom. Yeah. Where are you here? What did you do? Um, you know, there's there's this mm-hmm. there's this sort of built in and I think it's it's interesting to think that there's been such a big focus on 
the newborn or on the child mm-hmm. um, that has become much more important. You look at most hospitals in this country and maternity wards are closing down or getting smaller and NICUs are becoming bigger and they're, the, the, we're sending a message which says um, that a, a preterm birth is normal and it's almost encouraged in terms of the way that we treat women. You know, it's yes, a really no, it's backwards, a, it is so inside out, upside down. I never hear, you never hear, even in the best hospitals in the country, experiences in the NICU, for example, where the mother was even addressed individually, taken care of, and it does feel like the care for the infants can't even be at its best without, it's a dyadic. Mm-hmm. What, what's the right word for dyad well, that doesn't me sound that word, so ridiculous? Actually. <laughs> <laughs> or you reminded you put that word in context to this issue, which I hadn't really. I think about I need it. to come up with a better word. I know because dyad. dyad sounds so cold, but I really feel like n- neither can exist without the other, the mm-hmm. mother or the child, and the and just thinking about the NICU and the months potentially that people spend there, and the the lack of attention to the trauma that the mother just experienced mm-hmm. is. It's devastating. And it creates all these other things which are long-term, you know, sometimes you can't control them. But right when you don't have that connection or and there's a separation, you know, it's it's much harder for the infant to, to, not impossible, but it's a much, much bigger um, challenge for Mm -hmm. that child to thrive Mm -hmm. or to have those connections. And I mean— I'm sure you'd be able to talk about this for a long time, right? And you see the way that that manifests itself all throughout the rest of our lives. But that, you know, early childhood infancy is where you really have such a big opportunity. And I would argue that it's even before Before. You're totally right. But I remember when I was pregnant with my first daughter and I went to whatever birthing class I took, I can't remember, and I had such a different mindset, and I didn't understand hospitals the way I do now. And so when we were sitting there, I remember the—I don't know if she was a doula or wh- whoever the birth educator was. She was saying something that said, you know, like, you don't want to be in a sterile environment. You know, she was kind of promoting not doing everything in the hospital or not, to, to your point about too much too soon, mm-hmm. you know, not going, not showing up when you, you know, right. first think you need to. Right. And I remember saying to my husband at the time, or at the time he was my husband, <laughs> I remember saying, what? I want to be exactly in a sterile place from the get-go. And mm-hmm. a hospital is the most sterile place you can get. And I feel so safe there because I will, you know, it's the it's so clean. And now, ugh, I'm sorry to say to anyone, like, that is just not true. People get, <laughs> well, you know. Well, it's, it's kind of, that's a really good point, actually, because it's this idea that you have to meet people where they are. And for some people, like, when I was becoming a mom, I already had a, a good sense that I wanted to have an unmedicalized birth, meaning that mm-hmm. I did not want any pain medication. I did not want any intervention. <laughs> and I was willing to, if things had gone a different way, that I would have been fine. But you were starting but from that Yeah, place. that's what I wanted. It's just like that's, me. That's what, I, that's what I envisioned for <laughs> right. myself. But my dad had also passed away just recently before I became a mom. And so I also had this really negative association to hospital. Not that that was the cause of his death, but, of course, but for that's... me it was a, it came with another kind of burden or a load mm-hmm. that that does impact the way that you experience um, something. And so just that little bit of sharing that part of my story just kind of allows you to think about how a patient experiences anything, right? They come in 
if there's, you know, like what their medical history is, what their what their parents' medical history was, right? What, if how that behavior was so modeled, um, what was the experience of your interaction with healthcare mm-hmm. throughout your life, right? Did and you apparently, mine was sterile. <laughs> <laughs> Which is maybe good. Um, so I was no. It's true though. It's it's very lucky. Like I at that at that point, I hadn't been needed, in a setting like that yeah. where I wasn't I wasn't walking through the experience of my parent having cancer or anything right. that that would make me associate the hospital with these these things that don't have anything to do with childbirth. Right. Right. So, but it's a, it's it's being able to spend enough time with the individual to understand. What else is going mm-hmm. on there? What else might be holding you back? What else is, you know, shutting you down or deterring you from taking the best possible care of yourself at this time? I mean, there are a lot of linkages to um, trauma around sex when you have a baby. There's a lot of trauma that comes up around your own parenting and mm-hmm. your own mother. Like, there's a lot. I mean, these are probably the things that people don't talk about because there's so much. It's such, there's, it's such a loaded period of time. And yet trying to unpack that, which is what doulas traditionally do or what midwives traditionally do because they there's a, a model of care that they provide, which is taking in the, it's a more holistic approach, right? And they do take more time. And because they're sort of trained to address the whole woman and her throughout her entire reproductive years as opposed to this is the doctor or the specialist you need when you're becoming a mom mm-hmm. and then once you had the baby then you move on to this other doctor mm-hmm. you know what I mean it's a, sort of we go like okay you're with the OB then you have the baby then the, then, then then the, pediatrician, the pediatrician which is why actually they're trying there's a lot of effort right now bringing the pediatricians yeah. into this conversation because they tend to be the best, best first line mm-hmm. of defense right if, but they have to believe that it matters for the health of the mom too. The mom <laughs> and for the whole family and the baby, right? But I think the you know the data are showing that this actually does affect health outcomes for both moms and babies and children and on and on. And so as that's becoming scientific and not just what I think is perceived in the medical community as softer mm-hmm. um, or was. That's true. It's changing how hopefully. Uh, pediatricians and other care providers think about medicine. That's true. But just the idea of how important it is, we were talking, you know, b- before we started started talking, we were talking about how <laughs> siloed, right, everything right. is. And so when you think about healthcare or when you think about maternity care in particular or, you know, like that, just that handoff, right, OB, it's people, a handoff. people come to their OB, they see their gynecologist maybe, uh, you know, hopefully, a lot before they get mm-hmm. pregnant. But if they haven't, a lot of times that's the sort of entry point, right. right? And then you're seeing them fairly regularly and it sort of ramps up as you get closer to delivery. Then the baby's born. And if the baby's healthy or not healthy, it right away, the passing off to the pediatrician, you can't leave unless the pediatrician has that sort of, you know, checking list. And they're looking at um, the APGAR stuff. That's all, that's the checklist that moms mm-hmm. don't even get. Exactly. Mm, yep. Um, and so the We're emphasis really trying to change right it, away. But yes. I know, I know. But then then they move so on. Bad. And we typically in our medical system do not see our provider again That's for right. a minimum of six, six weeks. Six weeks. If on a good day. On a good day. And so you and but you're gonna see your pediatrician before that. So it is this opportunity. Can you believe that weekly you'll see your pediatrician? Mm-hmm. It, it, even if everything's going beautifully. So in the UK, you have a choice right away when you're pregnant. 
And I, I've known people in the UK that have not had a great experience also. But just to show you like the example of the universal health care, mm-hmm. the integrated system of health, woman's pregnant. She has a couple of choices. She's always offered a midwife because if it's a not a high-risk pregnancy, that would be the usually the first choice. And then the backup is high risk or you have the option as well to have an OB. You have the baby. The nurse, visiting nurses come home to you weekly. You can also say no, but it's set but it's up it, it's set up that everyone has this option. And a lot of women have said, oh, you know, that's such a pain. I don't need it. And it's an, an intrusion on my, like, my bonding with my baby. But for all of the women that don't have somebody yeah. or do not have the support systems or do not have that psychosocial um, yes. sort of support— that's life-saving. And that's the person who we usually recognize, first of all, be able to coach and give some of that early childhood development, that like parenting coaching, as well as really check in with a mom and see like, how is she doing? How How is she, is she eating? Mm-hmm. Is she sleeping? You know, all of those things. And she can look in again, what I was saying earlier with, with the way midwives did it here in the U.S. and everywhere else before, being in the home, you, can, you have this incredible opportunity to educate everybody along with that mom. But you're doing it with the with the focus of or the 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 goal of empowering her. Right. It's a it's not what it is in the US if you do if you qualify for home visits, that that means you are at the you mm. are in dire need. And so it has such negative connotations even though it's actually really effective and important. Yeah. But then you're you're already making a judgment call and people are already walking in thinking this this is a this is a struggling situation and it's not if you have a great care provider it's beautiful and they mm-hmm. can be empathetic and helpful and supportive but either way you can feel ashamed you start off out of the gate ashamed. Mhm. It's true. I mean, just to be able to, I mean, there's a lot of um, just responsibility placed on the mom, which is like, you have to be almost self-selecting to like, what program do you, what program do you, are you eligible for? What are you not eligible enough mm-hmm. for? We've seen that with Medicaid because the way that it works in this country with state to state, it's so, it's so mm-hmm. up and down and in and out. And so, you know, we have this one film series called Giving Birth in America. And mm-hmm. in one of them that focuses on maternal health in Florida, there's a mom that has moved from South Carolina. And so she's late in her pregnancy. She's moved because of a job opportunity or lack thereof. And she comes down and suddenly her eligibility is very, very different. But She's not in a position to be able to explore and see what what what's my Medicaid going right. to be down there. It's like these are the these are this is what's happening in my life. This is what my choices are, and now I'm there, and now I don't have health care. Now I don't have any coverage at all, and I have a toddler, and I'm pregnant with my second child. You know what I mean? Like it's just a lot to put on any single human, especially um, when they have the added stress of. Raising other ones and mm-hmm. and physically going through what they're and going there's a through. lot of blame um, as yeah. as yeah. we sort of were touching upon right which is like oh well there's services oh there are free services or, oh there's access but we're not taking into account that like what does this mom do that's looking for work that has a child that's completely dependent on you know that she's still caring most of the time as well as the child and her you know, like so the idea of going to your going to your health visits, your checkups and dragging the, you know, the kid and the stuff mm-hmm. and like, and missing a day of work or yeah. sitting there and filling out paperwork. Like these are things that many just find shortcuts and they find ways around them. But a lot of people don't have the workarounds and they don't have um, 
the ability and they certainly don't have the resources or means to be able to get them. And so when you look at our system or the the how difficult it is for people to get what may or may not be offered, um, it's really – it's a wonder that <laughs> as many people come through it as well as they do, actually. No, it's true. I, I wish just for the smallest things like when you are going to – if you're going to the Medicaid clinic to take your kid to the pediatrician – why isn't there an OBGYN visit at the same time? Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't there somebody standing or sitting there for both parent and child in the same right. physical space? Right, or the family courts, right? I have a, a mom friend at my school who um, works in the family courts in Brooklyn, and she, early on, you know, I got to see the place where she works and how the setup is. And so there are a lot of social services that are there, mm-hmm. all these offices, um, because they often have these situations where everyone, it's like, you don't go home again. You have to, like, you need to have clothes. You need you need toys. You need everything fresh, and you have to get started in your, your new life. And so I saw, and we had a partner at the time who was doing a lot of, um, who was doula training, and she's still a community partner of ours. But I thought, you just need a, you need one of her people to also be on that floor. Yeah. Because guess what? Um, a lot of women, if one of the other, one of the direct causes of maternal mortality is domestic violence. And so it's a piece of that conversation. It's also, right, women, they, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So if women are in these situations where they don't have choices in their home or, you know, they are vulnerable to um, some kind of abuse or uh, violence, where are they supposed to get this extra care or birth control or, um, you know, anything yes. to help them? Even somebody just to write a prescription who's sitting mm-hmm. there. And I agree. I am on shrooms. Not what you're thinking. The legal kind. But these mushrooms are still magic. Everyday magic, you might say. This episode of Raising Good Humans is brought to you by Four Sigmatic a wellness company that mixes shrooms and adaptogens with coffee, cacao, latte, protein powder, and edible skincare. It contains lion's mane, which is a functional mushroom, and your brain's best friend because it supports focus, productivity, and creativity. Fun fact, lion's mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. Plus, it includes Chaga, the king of mushrooms, which supports your immune system with antioxidant properties. So no, these shrooms do not contain psilocybin, but they will help your brain. And you might be wondering, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? Because I was, and that seemed very unappealing. But it does not taste that way at all. No sense. It tastes just like regular coffee or just like latte or just like cacao mix or just like chai. There are different flavors. It's made with 100% organic coffee beans, no sugar, no carbs, no calories. As I said, it's organic, it's vegan, it's paleo, it's sugar-free, it's dairy-free. It's awesome. And also because Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee has half the caffeine of regular coffee, you can actually have lots of it. Personally, For me, that's a good thing because I have coffee throughout the day, but this doesn't leave me jittery. The easy-to-use packets, you can kind of put in your pocket, put in your purse, take anywhere, put in your suitcase. And of course, there's a special offer for the Raising Good Humans audience. You receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. You just go to foursigmatic.com slash humans or enter the code humans at checkout. That's 
F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash humans to receive 15% off your order. Tell me about the races that you do. Mm-hmm. Races? They're not races. They're, the ma- marathons. they're marathons. <laughs> I, I, I'm... Tell the me jogs, a little bit about the jogging those, that I those do. Those little light, the light <laughs> jogs that you do and how you can sort of engage other parents to be healthier by doing them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if yeah. I will ever be recruited. I, um, I, I, I mean, what if you just can't? I think you've told me before I don't have to run. I could walk or yes. bounce. I yes. like to call it bouncing. Can, it, I'm like more up and down than forward. <laughs> but I haven't had the— I can bop. <laughs> um, you uh, so yes, the the running, the running is is something that kind of it just kind of happened. Really, I um, I I started the organization in 2010. I had a personal experience um, delivering my first child, who's now a woman, a 15 and a half <laughs> young woman at 15 and a half, um, and uh, I went on this kind of journey to go back to school and study public health, to make a film um, around the world looking at this issue and, like, really trying to understand the challenges but also the solutions. Wait, did you know that you were going to do that film before you went to school for public the I did them at the same health? time. You did? Yes. So was it part of your master's? No, although in retrospect, it probably should Why wasn't that been. your thesis? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it kind of was, but it but it wasn't. It. Um, I knew I wanted to do both, and I was just, like, so fired up. Right? Uh-huh. I, I had this experience. I got exposure to, like, what was happening globally, particularly, um, particularly or first globally before I understood what was happening in the U.S. And all that information, coupled with my experience, is what really, like, ignited this this sense of like I've got to do this there's like there's so much here for me to do and I didn't know right away what that was going to be but it sort of it sort of unfolded for me and so at a certain point I had this opportunity I'm like you know I'm I'm around all these people that I'm so inspired by and you know what should I do like should it be social work should it be public health and th- a lot of the physicians especially who are working in development that I was um, spending a lot of time with at the time they had said oh no the MPH is great because <laughs> you will build these incredible relationships that you will have for the rest of your life and you know this idea of like population health like it's just it's and family health like it's just so important it really sort of gets to the crux of mm-hmm. so many things and so I took that and I took their recommendations and I applied and started studying right away and at the same time I had the idea after a trip to um, Peru where I saw this incredibly inspiring program where they had, you know, halved maternal mortality in this area that was incredibly, um, incredibly vulnerable up in the highlands. And just seeing it and seeing how they were able to do this in a very short time um, just inspired me so much. So I was like, a film, a film. I need to show it. I need to, I need to like, I need to meet more people and I need to bring those stories to more people. I don't want it to be that I have this experience, but I can, I can share it like word of mouth mm-hmm. in my circle. But I, how do I really get that out? How do I amplify these stories? And so the film seemed to be the best way to be able to reach a lot of people um, at once. And so I applied, started the interview interviews for the film and like did it all the way through. And as I was in school, I had, I got to build even more relationships in public health and global health. And through those relationships is how I started to pinpoint like the where, where would I focus? Like, I, like global problem, but where do you begin? Cause I could have closed my eyes and just put my finger on a map on a globe and it, I could have gone there. Right. Um, but just to get started sometimes is the hardest part. So I went to the UN and I saw the president of Tanzania speak 
he was like the head of the African Union at the time, and he was sort of, you know, really, really talking the talk in terms of maternal and infant health. It was like the top of his agenda. And wow. I was like, Tanzania. <laughs> That's where we'll go in Tanzania. And there was high need there as well. It's a mm-hmm. country that I had some history. Um, I'd spent some time there, and I, I love the country. So that was the way I made that decision. And I sort of took that approach to the four countries that we that we sort of highlighted in that film. Um, another was uh, Guatemala. Um, Guatemala, my mother's from El Salvador, which is right next door to Guatemala. Um, Guatemala, like Peru, the place where I had seen this incredible example um, of the maternal mortality reduction, it has a lot in common with Guatemala. Um, a very high indigenous population, more than 50%, you know, marginalized, the, the most marginalized people um, where they where they live and where they exist, they're like Indigenous people, they fall to the very bottom of the social rung. So that felt like a place that was as close to my mom's people and my sort of origin story, but linked to what I saw that where I saw there was an opportunity for change and for for progress. Mm-hmm. Um, Bangladesh, I had thought at first about um, uh, about Afghanistan. We were very much at war at the time. <laughs> and so we looked at another place right. <laughs> where, because uh, this was all in 2008, um, and I thought, you know, Bangladesh is um, is a country that has an incredible, um, incredible history. But there are people that have had so many challenges, whether it's climate change and um, just the vulnerability, geographic vulnerability that the people have to deal with and face and have always as well. But they also have this constitution that is golden. It is like they have some of the best laws ever written in a constitution because they were, you know, they were separated from um, from Pakistan and India at, at a time when they were able to have new leadership and thought leadership come mm-hmm. in and like recreate it properly. So it's actually very impressive. And so we were like, how do we deal with some of the social barriers, some of the cultural barriers? And so those four countries I felt and the U.S. Those four countries together would paint a very interesting and I thought yeah. well-rounded um, sort of vantage at this issue. Um, that's a really long-winded answer. <laughs> but um, but the film process really deepened my studies and it focused the, the, the coursework that I did. And then I could build these relationships, which has been the biggest asset ever is really those relationships which I continue to develop and cultivate and which now so many of um, of my professors who also run organizations or are on governing bodies of foundations or the United Nations mm-hmm. um, sustainable development goals all of those things they're all very much in in my daily sort of ethos which is incredible and and every mo- every mother counts evolved out of that first film. Exactly. That first film, No Woman, No Cry. The the action version. Exactly. This became the, at the end of the two years of making it, I was like, oh, okay, this this isn't just something that I can contribute, which was my initial goal. I was like, I'll make this film, I'll learn, and then I'll I'll kind of, because I I funded it, I I directed it, I produced it. I was like, here, development world, take it and run with it. I've raised awareness. Right. Which was just a tiny piece of what needed to happen. But it was a really important time, 2010, also for this issue. Like, it was for the first time maternal health was on the global agenda at the G8 conferences in in, um, Canada. I traveled with the film all over the world. I went back to each of the countries multiple times to screen it with the people that were participants in the film who helped me with the research aspect of the film. Um, it became the film to talk about maternal health, which was one of the goals of the Millennium Development Goals. And so 
like suddenly we're in the center of a conversation and the film is bringing the faces and voices of the statistics of this issue. And this sort of like suddenly the world is really – not that people weren't paying attention, but a small group of people were paying yes, attention for decades. This is an easier way to connect. Exactly. And so, you know, I have to say to this day it remains as important as it was when it came out in 2010. We've updated statistics multiple times to make sure that we are staying on track mm-hmm. with everybody else. But now as the Millennium Development Goals have sort of moved away and made space for the Sustainable Development Goals – it's still a piece of that conversation. And I think our organization really was formed to continue to bring those those voices, right, to amplify women's stories and to amplify those voices. And not only just – not only the women. I wouldn't say just the women because they are still centered, central to our, our organization. Um, but the providers, the people who take care of them. So in every film – and we've made now more than 22 films wow. um, collectively, not full – feature films, but shorter form films, um, series of films, really focused on, again, challenges and solutions. What's going on and what can we do to fix it? No, I've seen some Um, of them. They're extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you. With the lens of what is possible, because I think really for people to feel like I can do something about this, I don't want to like silver coat it or... um, or pretend that solutions are easy or because they're definitely not. Um, But to start to look at like, okay, if this works and if this works and if this kind of works, but could be, could work better if we just do this. Like, I think that's the way that we We get to to motivate people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In motivation research, you have to believe there's at least a 50% chance that you're going to sort of hit that goal. And so if you believe that you can help, you're, you know, at least even if it's overwhelming, if you can let people know yes. that they can make a difference, they'll be much more likely to do something. If it's too overwhelming and just like, this is so, yeah, this is just a mess. Because you yeah. have to really take like bite-sized yeah. pieces of any problem, really, but particularly the very big problems or big global challenges. So what are the bite-sized pieces that people can take on now to help support Every Mother Counts and to help support maternal health? Right. Get back to the running. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to mention no, the running true. because I'm, I'm think, I think if I say out loud that at some point I'll do it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you will have to do it. That's how I do it. If I say it out loud, I do it. Um, so that really, once the organization was founded, there was, there was this opportunity where people were coming and saying, oh, I, I love what you're doing. I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And so the races kind of came about that way. Um, CrowdRise, which is a crowd, uh, sourcing platform that partners with the New York City Marathon. They were new at the time and had just partnered with the New York City Marathon. So we got a reach out with like, here's 10 spots, run the New York City Marathon. And marathon running, like running a marathon had been on a bucket list at some point before I became a mom. And then once I became a mom, I was like, "Ah, I don't know if that's going to (laughs) happen. But then we have this opportunity again with 10 spots. And I think they thought like, auction them off, do whatever you want to do with them, uh-huh. but they're coveted spots and they're hard to get. So you, they hopefully they're useful to you and enjoy. And of course, like mm. thought about that for a little while. And I was like, no, I can't. I'm the, I'm the leader of my foundation, of my organization. I'm going to, I'm going to run it. And it, you and can't I, auction them off to other people, yes. but not do it. Yes. Why? Well, I could have, but I couldn't. <laughs> um, and then I reached out. I was like, it's only 10. I know 10 people that will run with me. So we formed a little team and then I started training. And when I started training, like Im- almost immediately, the the connection to our organization and our mission became so crystal clear for me. You know, distance is a huge barrier for women all over the world. Like literal distance is mm-hmm. like five 
kilometers is an average distance a woman has to walk for basic care of any kind. Um, 26.2, which is a marathon distance, is a very average distance for women to have to travel for emergency obstetric care. So, you know, those things were not lost on me. And every time I could run, and if I was, you know, oh, that hurts, or because I wasn't really a, I wasn't a runner. I mean, I call myself an athlete, but I wasn't really a runner. So anytime that I got past like the next highest mile, it was like, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can. But then it became, my mantra became every mile, every mother, every mile, every mother. Ugh. Women have to walk miles and I can choose this and I'm healthy and I and I have support and I have access and I have all of these things. So that's why I'm going to run. And so it resonated with my team. And then people who saw us do it, like, it's like, oh, wow, that was really cool. Will you do that again? I want to join your team. So it grew wow. just in a very natural way. And when you run a marathon, you know, the majority of people who run marathons are running for a cause. And so you're surrounded by people who are running, they're running for themselves in the sense that it's a goal and it's good for your health to be like fit and active, but they're really running selflessly for something that's bigger than themselves that does create this sort of sense of community and connection. And so when I'm out there, I mean, you 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 want to cry the whole time you're running because you feel like that deep connection to what you're running for, but also all of these other people who are doing a similar thing. So it's like one of the best days in this city and any other city where there is a marathon. But really over time, it allowed us to let people participate in something mm-hmm. that they didn't think that they yeah. understood, but suddenly moms who were like, oh, I can do that. You know, I can do that. And and so, and then other people that were really experienced runners who said, oh, I don't, I've never really linked it to a cause, but you know what? I actually, I did have a complication or I actually do know somebody who's, who suffered a, a morbidity after delivering. And you know what? I can dedicate my run to that person. And so it just became this really beautiful way of bringing more people into the conversation and into the fold. And then it created this sense of loyalty to the organization because it feels so tangible and it feels so like we can do this together and the the, the awesome. more of a, a sort of base of support that are educated and empowered um, to advocate for something that they care about and believe in that that like that's a movement essentially so it's something that we invite all the time and people sometimes like I don't run walk um, or a marathon is too much 5k has anybody like, walked Yes. And there's a whole there's a whole way of training actually. There's a walk run method. Really? So people do like a four to one. I don't know what it is, but people do that and they swear by it. So yes, we we I just we have to can, find a partner for that. <laughs> couch to five K is what we're gonna start. By the way, I have I just started couch to five K last week. You did? Week. There you I go. think it's because I knew that you're preparing <laughs> for this conversation. You. Yes, couch to five K for you. And really. what a beautiful idea, which I don't know how I didn't pick up on which is the idea of all those steps that a woman has to take yeah, um, to get to the to care. health care mm-hmm. that she needs. That's incredible. And mm-hmm. that is much more motivating every mile, every month. Uh, what, what every it, mile, what, every mother. Every mile, every mother. And so, that. but there's other ways. So we we also do, um, what else? We, do we do lots of screening events because mm-hmm. we, I mentioned the film and the storytelling, which is so important. So it's really important, I think, to to have these like collective experiences, right? Where so whether it's at conferences or at schools, um, I've done it at at middle schools, I've done it at high schools, where I, you bring really? a film in and you bring a couple of experts and you or you have you know people that have an experience to be able to share, and you have like a short film and then you have a dialogue afterwards, and it creates this opportunity to continue the conversation and to get more at the like how does this touch me and what can I you know further ask the question like what can I do. Yeah. And then usually that links back to some of the other opportunities we have to engage, which is through advocacy Mm -hmm. and policy change. And 
right now happens to be a pretty exciting time. It's a very, it's a difficult time, but that has sort of ignited mm. um, a different desire for people to be activated. And so um, early on in Every Mother Counts, we participated in some um, advocacy and policy efforts around sort of global maternal health. And they, a lot of them just didn't move fast enough. It just wasn't the time, surprisingly, right, during a time with a more open administration. And so suddenly in this different now situation, people, there's an there's an openness and a and a... There's a fire yes. right, that's been sparked. So, and maternal health, when you when you're talking about the very basics of it, it's it's a human right. Like healthcare is is a human right in my mind. It's my my belief and my strong opinion. Um, but when you can kind of have the conversation with anybody, no matter what their political beliefs are, and you get to like, don't you think that don't you think every child deserves a mom? Don't you think every mom deserves, who wants to be a mom, deserves mm-hmm. to have a child that's mm-hmm. healthy. Like, you know, like you start with like, the, let's it's talk such about a universal connector, common, right. sim- let's break it down. Um, and then you kind of build from there. So two pieces of legislation passed at the end of 2018, which were really exciting, but those two pieces of legislation have been introduced eight years ago, nine years ago. We were there then. Suddenly they got pushed through, but and they happened to be two pieces that were, they were important, but they were also not very comprehensive. They are important. One is very focused on uh, maternal mortality reviews, which mm-hmm. is important. A lot of states in this country don't really look and sort of evaluate when, like, what happened and let's go through the process. Like, um, I've been in rural Bangladesh where they do death audits in the community for every death, and we don't do that for every death here with maternal with maternal deaths. So that's something that is now starting to happen more and that's going to be really important and it should continue and it should happen. Some states are doing a great job and some are doing terribly. So at least to agree on like how do we define a maternal death versus or, or what's the period of time that a maternal death could happen and it could be 30 to, up to 30 mm-hmm. days after post or postpartum to up to a year. And so there are a few bills now being introduced that are trying to extend um, not only coverage with Medicaid but also like health care, like by the way, mom is still vulnerable well after the baby is born. Right. Um, and then the other piece was looking at um, at provider shortages across the country um, because, you know, we have a very rural part of our country, lots of rural parts of our country. And so um, like anywhere on the planet, like job opportunities are in cities. You find that people who, you know, have certain training for job opportunities, they move to the places where they're going to be more opportunities. And so that leaves a lot of sort of maternity deserts across the country. And so what that does is for a woman who does have a complication and she lives a few hours away from the next level of care, that's like potentially game over if she hemorrhages. Um, so trying to do a map of the country, understand where the gaps are, and then just start to fill them in, in with, you know, mid-level providers, whatever, whatever is needed. But so that's going to happen now, which is great. Now, this year, there are, I don't know, at least, at least seven pretty strong bills being introduced or reintroduced that are getting a little bit more comprehensive and a little bit more um, specific mm-hmm. around what could be done to address this issue, particularly with the disparities piece. And that's super exciting. So we, we educate people about what these opportunities are. We try to engage them. And some people are really into that kind of thing and others less so. So some people might want to run. Some, some people might want to advocate. advocate. And some might want to do both, right? <laughs> uh-huh. So and so the, the idea is that there are there are choices and, you, and, you know, we can't offer everything to everyone, but there are enough things that people can find a way, um, like learn, share, run, mm-hmm. walk, 
call your representative, you know? Yes. Um, and then sometimes we partner with um, corporations or product partnerships to create products that proceeds will go towards the programs that um, that improve access um, here in the U.S. or any of the places we work in Guatemala, Haiti, Bangladesh, India, Tanzania, Uganda. And people can find that on? On everymothercounts.org. There you go. Mm-hmm. And they can follow Every Mother Counts. Every Mom, Every mom counts. counts on Twitter and Instagram. I forgot about Twitter. Twitter. Of course. What's yes. wrong with me? It's such beautiful work that you're doing. And I can't believe how little time has gone by, even though it probably feels like a long time, that you've accomplished so much as an organization, as a person. And also just, I mean, it's grown so much and the awareness yes. is is out there. It has. I and mean, I think um, – this last year, especially, there's been so much coverage, especially around the U.S. Um, maternal mortality or maternal health uh, crisis, and a lot of incredible reporting and documentation and storytelling. And those stories are emerging, and they're really, you know, they're impacting legislation. They are or inspiring legislation, I should say, and then they are um, they're educating the public to be able to be empowered to ask questions of providers of hospitals like that's a very big deal mm-hmm. just not even realizing that you can ask questions and not even understanding how i mean there is such a gap in the information that patients receive and also that that the public knows about right and right. what and what we're entitled to for healthcare and what services we should be getting and how to take care of ourselves right. patient rights are not um, known right as widely or as broadly as they could be, and so um, you know breaking that down though. I mean, I think we go into places where we're all filling out forms, but do we really read everything that we're no. filling out? And does that no. take does that signing something at, when you walk into a, a an office versus when you're in another stage of your care and consent is is still important and still needs right. to be like raised in the moment? Um, so yes. Um, how did I get off that? <laughs> you and I are really I mean, quite a pair. And now for the closing notes. If you want to learn more about Every Mother Counts, you can go to everymothercounts.org and join a race or get involved and find out what you can do to support maternal health. And now for your questions that you sent me on DM. The first one says, My daughter goes to school with my best friend since kindergarten. They're close and are sort of best friends, but they're very different, and we have different parenting styles, and her behavior is something that I won't allow for my daughter. My daughter is a little more passive, very content, but also social. She gets along with everyone in her class for the most part, and when your typical fifth grade drama occurs, she stays out of it and pretty much brushes it off. But her best friend is right in the middle of all the drama. There's a popular girl who she does not get along with at all, and it has created a huge divide within the girls. It puts my daughter in a tough spot because her best friend can act up and get in trouble often. When she acts like that, my daughter always stays away from her and plays with the other girls. I feel bad that my friend and her daughter are going through this, but I can't help to feel that a lot of the issues are parenting and playing victim. She will often call me and say my daughter was ignoring her daughter. I've told her that her daughter can act up and my daughter stays away at those times because she doesn't want to get in trouble, even though she tells me she understands. She will often make comments that my daughter jumped ship with the other girls. 
I don't know how to tell her to handle it. Last week, my friend's daughter all week kept trying to get my daughter in trouble. So by the end of the week, my daughter started to ignore her. So of course, she played a victim and was on her own playing by herself for all the parents to see. I told my daughter that she needed to explain to her why she was mad, that she can't just ignore her. And she did the very next day. And they were friends again. And then they got in trouble. I don't know what to do. Any advice? Well, this is a tough one because I don't know the whole story. But importantly, I don't think you know the whole story because the problem is it never really is clear when there's a conflict between two girls or two kids in general, what the whole picture is when you only hear from one person. But I think that when your daughter tells you and when she's expressing, you know, kind of the story to you, it sounds like from your version of it to me that you have a real side from your point of view your daughter is in the right and when you have that point of view sometimes which is very supportive of your daughter but sometimes you might want to try helping your daughter imagine what her friend is going through and try to come up with some solutions that can help her not get in trouble but also be compassionate and try to figure out what's happening with her friend. And if you call her friend a victim or you say that her friend is the one causing the problems, what might happen is that she'll reflect your version of the story back and it may be that neither of you guys are able to see another side. So I just want to throw that out there. And of course, I have no idea because I'm not there. And it may very well be that this other child is 100% the problem and that your daughter stays neutral. I just would encourage you to consider that there may be another part of the story. So when your friend complains about it to you, you can just empathize with her without involving your daughter. And you can say, is there something that you would like me to do to help? And if she says, you know, I want you to make your daughter be friendlier to my kid, then you can say, I I really, I can't control what my daughter does any more than you can control what your daughter does, but I'm happy to help them problem solve together. And then when it comes to helping your daughter and giving her advice, I would just say, I'm glad that you let her know that stonewalling isn't a way to treat anybody. Because when you just decide to ignore someone without saying, listen, I can't seem to keep myself from getting in trouble when I hang out with you. So I'm just taking a little bit of a break right now and letting her know that you're not just arbitrarily ignoring her. I think that's really important. There's a big difference between taking care of yourself and being unkind to someone else. Once she's done that, really, I would sort of ask her, first of all, is she looking for your advice? And then I'd ask her, if she is looking for your advice, to first tell you what her plan is, what she's going to do the next time these conflicts occur, and see what she's decided. And once you find out what her plan is, then you can find out what happens when that plan goes in a particular direction. So what I don't know if you noticed, but what I'm not doing is giving her the answer or lecturing. Because One way to help kids really learn how to problem solve is not to give them the way to solve the problem, 
but rather ask them the questions to guide them to figure out how to solve the problem themselves. Or if they make the wrong decision, it's a pretty innocent time and she can fall on her face like she did, frankly, by choosing to ignore her friend without giving her um, an explanation of what was going on. So she learned like, oh, maybe that didn't work because that ended up causing more confusion and conflict. So in opening up the idea that you're there to help her come up with her own solutions and maybe walk her through what it will look like if she chooses a particular solution, you're going to help her think like a problem solver instead of look to you for all of the answers. Good luck. I know fifth grade can be really challenging. Okay, here's another one. Hello, I love the podcast. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) I just finished the sleep episode and was wondering if you have any tips for toddlers. My baby started climbing out of her crib around 18 months, and we put her toddler bed out so she would stop falling. Prior to that, she was an excellent sleeper. She would cry a bit before falling asleep in her crib, but mostly just slept through the night. Now she's a little over two and consistently wakes up after a few hours of sleep and wants to come into my bed with my husband and I. I've let her sleep with us so that we can get some sleep ourselves, but now I feel like she's come to expect it. I guess my question is, how bad is it to let her come sleep with us? And if it is a problem, what can I do at this point? Thanks so much for the advice. Ah, that is a question I get asked a lot. So here's my first answer. There is no problem with where she's sleeping if she's getting consolidated and consistent sleep and you and your husband don't mind having her in your bed. Where it becomes a problem is if she's not getting consistent and consolidated sleep or if it's causing tension for you and your husband or if you aren't getting sleep because of it. So there's no evidence that suggests that where your two-year-old sleeps is right or wrong as long as it's in a healthy space. The evidence is that they need that sleep. So no problems there with where. And I do think she is in a habit of getting into bed with you. She must wake up after a few hours and kind of know, okay, I don't know how to get myself back to sleep and now I get to go in mommy and daddy's bed. If you do have a problem with that, then you can work your way out of her room versus having her work your way out of your room. It's very hard to get a kid out of your bed. It's much easier to, although unpleasant, to when she wakes up after a few hours and wants to come into your room, you walk your child back to her room when she comes in after three hours and you don't say anything. You just walk her back, tuck her in, and you have an option. If she's going to come back in your room, you keep walking her back, no interaction, and you do that as many times as you have to over days and days and days. And you let her know during the day that when that happens at night, you're just going to bring her back to her room. If she's the kind of kid who really is going to just have a lot of distress from that and it's going to drive you crazy and you're going to be exhausted, but you want to change this, what you can do is say you are going to set up a little you know, chair for yourself and you'll wait there while she falls back asleep. And then over a few days, you'll move the chair further and further out of the room until it's in the hallway. And you'll be exhausted for about two weeks and then she should get back to normal. Another option is that if you don't want her in your bed, but you don't care if she comes in your room, you can just put a sleeping bag on the floor next to your bed and say, mommy and daddy need their sleep as well. 
So if you wake up in the middle of the night and you want to go to sleep in our room, you can get in this sleeping bag, but you can't come in our bed. And that's that. So you have lots of options. But again, it doesn't matter where she's sleeping as long as she's getting sleep. It's just about where you want her to be sleeping. The last question that I got for today is I have a question about my almost four-year-old's anxiety and how to manage. He gets anxious before we go do new things, birthday parties, parks, activities that he's never been to or done before. He communicates that he's scared and likes to see pictures and explain what's going on and what's, you know, what to expect. Recently, we took him to a birthday party with a lot of his classmates and he forced me to sit with him for the first 10 minutes. It was one of those play gyms and there was a coach during a silly movement activity I don't want to be a snowplow parent and not allow my child to feel anxiety and get uncomfortable. Recently, we took him to a birthday party with a lot of his classmates, and he forced me to sit with him for the first 10 minutes. It was one of those play gyms where there's a coach doing silly movements, etc. In situations like this, how much encouragement do we do? How much handholding? And how do we help to let him go? After about 10 minutes, he warmed up and was fine. Well, it sounds like A couple of words that you used in your language make me think that, first of all, everything's perfectly normal sounding, um, but you're more worried about your response than his anxiety, which is a good thing. But when you say things like, he forced you to stay with him, the language, and I know it's just language, but whenever you find yourself saying your child is forcing you to do something, they're not forcing you to do something you are not able to handle their distress. And so you feel like it's easier to do what they're asking of you. Now, when it comes to being a slow to warm up child, which is what it sounds like, it sounds like he likes to know what he's getting into. He's a little slower to warm up, but then he gets there. So the best thing to do is moderately and, you know, without too much of a thing about it, help let him know what's going to come. You don't need to do a picture show every time you go to a party, but you could say, here's our schedule for the day. This is what you can expect and help him know that he can kind of trust what his schedule is, but that you're not going to go deep diving into what to expect at each and every event. So you're just letting him know it's, you know, for example, a party at a gym, there are going to be a bunch of your classmates. I don't have too much information about it, but I'll be there with you. And then when you get there, if he says, you know, you have to stay with me, you can just let him know what you're willing to do. So you might say on the way over there, when we get there, I'm not going to be able to join you in the ball pit, but I can sit there for 10 minutes right outside and watch you. And once the 10 minutes are up, I'm going to go talk to the other grownups. That's the plan. And then you just stick with it. And over time, you can shorten the amount of time that you're going to spend kind of helping him warm up. But it's totally reasonable for a four-year-old to want a little bit of extra time warming up to a situation and then going in and enjoying himself. And the one thing I would add is if you find that he really is just enjoying himself after he's, you know, gets his first way of being calm in the space by having you there, then you know this is just something he's going to 
have to learn to do on his own as he gets a little bit older. And so you can help him over the next year or two as parties become drop-off where parents aren't there, develop strategies to help himself warm up in a situation. But for now, you're the you know, you're the person who's giving him a little bit of his sense of calm when he feels stable, you're letting him go. If it's only 10 minutes, it's really sounding like a pretty typical behavior for a kid who's a little bit cautious and I wouldn't worry about it. Again, if he tried to extend it past the 10 minutes, then you might have more concerns. But if he's able to say, just spend a little bit of time with me and then I'm going to be fine, I would say just enjoy that he's communicating with you what he needs and keep the limit of the time and he'll get better at it. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you think and keep sending in your questions to my Instagram DM at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And if you're in the mood, you know, you can subscribe, rate, and write a little review. I am going to have a guest next week who I am so excited about, psychologist and author, Dr. Lisa Damore. She wrote two of the best books on teenage girls and tween girls, Untangled and Under Pressure. So we are going to get into it with her. I cannot wait. She's awesome. And if you know in advance that you have particular questions, feel free to send them my way. Have a great week. And as always, thank you for listening. I know your time is incredibly valuable.